All right. Well, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, our text for this morning is verses 28 through 48. Luke chapter 19, 28 through 48. We are continuing to walk through this gospel. We're getting closer to the end, uh, but we find ourselves here this morning in Luke 19, verse 28. A bit of a transition passage, and so we want to give our time and careful thought to it this morning. Luke 19, I want to begin reading in verse 28. This is the word of the Lord. We read, and when he, said, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near Bethphage and Bethany, the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, the, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. But the days will come upon you when your enemies will set, up on a, will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. If you remember back in chapter nine of Luke, verse 51, there was a transition in that part of the gospel that tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so from chapter nine, verse 51 onward, Jesus is on a mission to go to Jerusalem. That began the section of Luke that is often called the travel narrative, which records the teachings and many of the miracles and work Jesus did all along the way as he makes his way to Jerusalem. Well, today in chapter 19, verse 28, we mark another transition in Luke. Jesus has made it to Jerusalem. The travel narrative has concluded and now we enter what's often called the passion narrative. Jesus has made it to Jerusalem in order to fulfill God's redemptive purposes. Luke has been building to this point, hasn't he? In fact, this is the moment we in the entire Old Testament 
has been waiting for. The entire Old Testament has been preparing us for this moment when Jesus not only would set his face to go to Jerusalem, but he would actually enter Jerusalem in order to accomplish the work that God had sent him to accomplish. This was the moment when the Messiah would come and enter the city and that the work of redemption for the people of God would be completed. So as we walk our way with Jesus this morning, at the beginning of the text, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and then as he makes his way into the city of Jerusalem, we're gonna see a, a portrait of sorts painted for us that displays the heart of Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem to bring salvation. In fact, we're gonna walk through what I'm calling three movements of this passage, three movements that, that show us the character of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, exactly what Jesus came to accomplish and do for his people. So I wanna walk through these three with you this morning. The first movement that we come to is found in verses 28 through 40, and we see here what I would call a deliberate entrance. A deliberate entrance. As Jesus nears Jerusalem, he is near Bethphage, Bethphage and Bethany and Mount of Olives that overlooks the city. And you notice there, and you get that little context there in verses 28 and 29, but then in verse 30, he makes an odd request, or at least it seems odd at first. He makes an odd request of his disciples, two of his disciples. Calls two of them to himself and says, listen, you're gonna go on a mission and I need you to secure a cult for me. Not just any cult, but a cult that has never been sat upon. Now, you think about this for a moment. We've been building up all this time. Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is now about to enter Jerusalem. And he pulls two of his disciples aside and says, I need you to go get a cult for me. It may seem odd, at least to our ears, considering the magnitude of what's about to take place. Here Jesus is heading into the holy city of Jerusalem. He's about to be arrested and crucified for the sins of his people. And he's all caught up with this cult. Like what in the world does this cult have to do with everything that's going on? Well, we need to understand that this is not insignificant. It's deliberate, it's necessary. Why? Because it was prophesied. In fact, if you were to read Zechariah, the prophet there in the Old Testament in chapter nine, verse nine and 10, as a prophecy looking forward to the coming Messiah, we read there, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus hasn't lost his mind. He is fulfilling prophecy. The cult is needed for him to enter the city because Zechariah prophesied, the Lord through Zechariah prophesied this is exactly how it would happen. So Jesus here is deliberately setting up the scene down to the very detail for his entry into Jerusalem. So he instructs them to go fetch this colt and if anyone asks them what they're doing, they were simply to say, the Lord has need of it. So can you imagine being these two disciples now going to get this colt? Must, who knows what must have been going through their minds? 
Or can you even imagine their discussion on the way? Like, what were they saying to each other? Like, you're the one asking, not me. Or no, you're the one talking. If anybody asks, you're the one that's got to say it. But they go and we know that obediently they do exactly as Jesus says. They go up to the colt, they start to untie it. And the owner of the colt was like, hey, what are you doing? And the disciples says, they say, the Lord has need of it. And the owner's like, okay, cool. So you're, so you're like, what is going on? So they bring the colt back and it becomes immediately clear to them why Jesus wanted it. And you see in verse 35, they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he begin to, begins to make his way down the Mount of Olives into the city. You may think, well, why, we know it's prophesied, why a colt? You, you think about the contrast about what a king would come riding in on. The contrast couldn't be clearer. Jesus is a different kind of king, isn't he? He's a different kind of king. He is not a king that is marked by revolution and war, coming in on a war horse. No, he is a king marked by humility and sacrifice, identifying with the very people he came to redeem. So he comes in humble on a colt, on a donkey. What we see from this is that Jesus is in control of this situation from beginning to end. Jesus is going into the city and down to the very detail, fulfilling the prophecy that the, that the Old Testament prophets had predicted. Down to that very kind of animal that he would ride upon coming into the city. Through this deliberate entrance, Jesus shows us a few things about himself. We could say many things, but just a couple of things here. Number one, that he is submissive. He's making this happen. He's on a mission to accomplish his father's purpose in redemption, and he's resolved to fulfill it to the very detail. He is submitting to his father's will, going into the city to accomplish salvation. He's in control of the moment, willingly, while at the same time, willingly humbling himself to the will of God, meticulously fulfilling every detail of the plan. And brothers and sisters, when we think about the submissiveness of Jesus to his Father's will, we need to understand that Jesus was submissive to the Father's will down to the very detail, down to the very kind of animal he would ride upon because he was going to accomplish salvation for people just like me and you. Think about that. This cult is part of the redemptive narrative. Yet another declaration, yet another proof of the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah that's coming to redeem sinners. And Jesus submissively yet sovereignly makes his way forward to do just that. Not only is he submissive, he is a king. It sounds contradictory, doesn't it? But it's not. As he makes his way forward, we're told here in the text that the multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. They, they, they were a, a shouting bunch of people, right? We would say in Tennessee. They were rejoicing loudly in all the mighty works that they had seen. 
They began to say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're, they're quoting a piece of Psalm 118, which was a messianic psalm sung in, in, the Jude, in Judaism as part of the Passover celebration. And so the disciples are singing this song to celebrate and to declare that Jesus is the sent king, the coming Messiah, the ones coming with God's authority. They're rejoicing in the moment because though they, they, they still have some of the details messed up, that they still aren't exactly clear how all this is, this, this is gonna pan out and what this means, but yet they understand something significant that the Messiah is coming and they are rejoicing even though they don't fully comprehend all of it. They see him as the promised king and they rejoice over him. But not everyone is rejoicing, are they? Look at verses 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees want Jesus to silence his disciples because of what they're saying, because of what they're communicating, because of what they're declaring through their praise. But Jesus refuses and says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It's as if he's saying, you can complain all you want, Pharisees, but this is gonna happen. This is gonna go down. And my disciples are going to give praise to God because of it. Nothing's gonna stop me from doing the will of my Father and you cannot stop or stifle the worship of God's people. Even if you could, the stones would cry out. He said, okay, you wanna silence them? That's fine, I'll just make the rocks rejoice. What you find here is as Jesus comes, as he's being declared as the king there in verse 38, what you find is that the kingship of Jesus is a truth, a reality that divides people. You see it right here in the text. You, you see the two varied responses, don't you? You see the disciples rejoicing and declaring Christ as king while the Pharisees demand they be silenced, demand that they be rebuked. The triumphal entry, as we often refer to this, is, is an event that results into ver two very different responses. It shows how one views this event will determine how you relate to God's plan. You don't have to be there. You didn't have to be there that day as we read it in the text this morning. As you, as you read the, the coming of Jesus and the, and the, the entry of Jesus into this, into this city, your response to that would declare where your heart is. You see the disciples rejoicing, you see the Pharisees wanting them to be rebuked. Brothers and sisters, what this does is it forces the question that every person has to answer. Is Jesus king or is he not? Is he king or is he not? Is he the source of your hope? <clears throat> The sole focus of your praise, is he the one that rules over heaven and earth? The one to whom you will give praise and glory and honor? Is he the one you get all amped up for in a given day or is he not? Is he someone else? 
Notice that not only do the Pharisees make their rejection of Jesus clear, they do so through the, the, the demand for the disciples to be silenced. They regard the praise of Jesus as king as inappropriate. Friends, isn't that true of the world in general? They, the world will often look at Christians and think, what are they so hyped up about? And you will find along the way that there are those in the world who will even go as far to say, we don't want to hear it. Let's silence the Christians. Let's silence the praise of God's people. The Pharisees saw this declaration as a threat. They saw it as a threat. They, they saw it as both a theological threat and a political threat. Think about that. Jesus is king. Is a theological declaration and it is a political declaration. And the Pharisees were troubled by that. They were offended by that. It didn't fit their theology and it certainly didn't fit their politics. So Jesus as king is absolutely a theological statement and it's absolutely a political statement. So he's king, he's king. So this deliberate entrance that Jesus makes into the city, he is doing so deliberately, submissively to the Father's will, but yet as a declaration of who he is as the promised Messiah, the, the king of kings. But I want us to now move to the second scene in this text, and we see that in verses 41 through 44. And this is what we can call a painful lament. He's deliberately making his way into the city, and now he's going to painfully lament the state of the city, the status, the condition. We see that in the text. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Remember, he's making his way down from the Mount of Olives on a colt. He, he draws near and near, closer to the city. He sees it and he begins to weep. Verses 42 through 44 tells us why he weeps. Begin to weep, weep over it, saying, Jesus talking now in verse 42, would that you, even you, Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not, here, because you did not know the time of your visitation. What Jesus is saying, as he weeps over the city, he's saying, judgment is about to come to this city because of your rejection of God's Savior. You are rejecting the plan of God, the, the promises that you've had in the Old Testament. You've rejected these things as the Messiah has come and now this painful lament 
Jesus expresses. Through this painful lament, we, we see a couple of truths about the heart of God. Number one, God grieves those who reject him. I think sometimes as people who have a high view of grace, I don't know that we appreciate this part so much sometimes. God grieves those who reject him. Jesus weeps because Jerusalem, the very people of God, the, the people who have had the covenant, the people who have had the promises, that dependent upon the prophets, they've missed it. All that's going on right in front of them, they don't see, they don't see the reality that the Messiah has arrived. What you get to see here is a bit of Jesus's heart. He's grieving their rejection of him. It shows that we have a God that is not indifferent to our spiritual condition. He weeps over the rejection of him. We see this in other places. For example, one of the prophets, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. The prophet is being instructed to say to them, the Lord says through the prophet Ezekiel, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. You need to understand, if your view of God is that he's smiling when the judgment flames are about to, to come, come down, if you think he's delighting in that, you have a, a jacked up view of God. It's a bad one. He does not delight in the suffering, the, the judgment of sinners. He's not indifferent to this. He's truly grieved over those who would reject him. Yet, second truth that we see, God will hold sinners accountable. In God, we have both of these truths held perfectly together that he weeps over those who reject him and yet he will hold sinners accountable to him. He announces their pending judgment. What we need to understand is that the compassion of Jesus does not erode the justice of Jesus. He goes on through tears and speaks prophetically to the day when I think Rome would attack and the fall of Jerusalem takes place in AD 70. Jerusalem is destroyed. Speaks of a day that would bring peace, his day. And now he points to a day that, that this day of peace is out of reach because of your rejection and now your eyes are, are, are closed. And now this day will come because of your hardness of heart. You have the, the compassion of Jesus, the grief of Jesus, and yet the justice of Jesus, the justice of God held together perfectly here. The ironic thing about all of this regarding, like from the Pharisees' point of view, is that the Pharisees saw Jesus as a political threat. They thought that if Jesus is allowed to, to go unchecked, that that might somehow cause Rome to muster up the troops and come attack and hold the nation in check. Now, the irony in that is that despite Jesus being crucified, that's exactly what happens as a form of God's judgment. Rome does muster up the troops and eventually in AD 70, they do attack 
and they leveled the city. And that city hasn't been the same since. It's a reminder, friends, that in the midst of God holding sinners accountable, it's a reminder that he controls the events of human history. World events are not random things that God looks down and sees and tells an assistant, oh, mark that down, let's do something with that. God is doing things in the world through events. Now, I'm not gonna be one of those that tells you that, oh, this means that and that means this and this means that. No, I'm not, not, not one of those. But we need to understand that the sovereignty of God is at work in the world and as he holds sinners accountable, he will work in the midst of history and things that are going on in our day to bring temporal judgment to bear upon even his people. What we see here is that God does hold sinners accountable, which means he desires our allegiance. He, he commands our allegiance to him. Jerusalem had everything it needed to see and believe. They were not lacking information. They didn't have Twitter with all the disinformation out there, right? That's a big term we like to use today. There wasn't misinformation. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They could read it, they could hear it, they could look around and see, and they didn't believe. Promise, fulfillment. Promise of God through the Old Testament, fulfillment of God through the coming of the Messiah in what we would have recorded for us in the New Testament. Unfolding before their very eyes. But yet they remained hardened in their hearts, blind, remained in their sin and rejection. And because of such, they would incur judgment. This is the painful reality and consequence of rejecting the Messiah, friends. Jesus is showing us with Jerusalem being exhibit A of what happens when God's message a message that is centered on the promise and arrival and accomplishment of the Messiah when that message is rejected. Jerusalem, exhibit A, what happens when you reject the truth? Think about that. This is Jerusalem. This isn't Babylon. Right? We could go to some other places and, and pick on Babylon, right? They go down too. But this is Jerusalem. It's where the temple was. The holy city, the city of David, the center of God's chosen people and national identity. This was the city God had chosen himself and now its death sentence is pronounced. Friends, what a warning for us today. It's so easy to look at the evil, idolatrous, vile ways of the world and think, yep, God's judgment's coming on them. But friend, this is a sobering reminder that God's judgment can come just as easy upon the religious, those who are in close proximity to the gospel as well. If Jerusalem of all places can get it wrong and be judged for their rejection and their rebellion against God. 
If Jerusalem can miss it and be dealt a devastating blow, then what about those of us who are affiliated with the church? Kind of close proximity to the gospel. We may hear the gospel proclaimed regularly. And yet in the end, have rejected it and not embraced the truth. Even with this pronouncement of destruction and judgment, we know that it wasn't the end of the story. Jerusalem's rejection, Israel's rejection leads to the Gentiles' inclusion. And the indication is, based on how you wanna take Romans 11 and other passages, is that could be in the future an ingathering of Jews that will take place near the end. Another discussion for another day. But the point is, is that this has not derailed God's plan to redeem. There will be Jews and there will be Gentiles that are now part of the kingdom of God and this reality is going to be a magnificent display of the redemptive plan of God on display throughout the world and so that all peoples, tribes, tongues, nations, and languages will still come and worship and follow this Messiah. God will hold sinners accountable, there's no question, but his promise continues to be held out, to be embraced, to be believed. So you see that through this painful lament, but in the number three, the last thing that we wanna see is an expressed authority. You see a deliberate entrance, Jesus deliberately making his way into the city, revealing himself as the submissive, yet submissive king, you see him painfully lament the condition of his people and yet the promise of judgment is still to come. And now you see his authority on display in verses 45 through 48. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. In other gospel accounts we know he might've flipped a few tables. Jesus' anguish has now moved to anger, righteous anger. He makes a bit of a scene here in the temple. As he drives out those who were selling in the temple, that was a normal thing. People would make their way to Jerusalem, especially during Passover, kind of a pilgrimage each and every year. And so because of the sacrifices that would have to take place, they wouldn't bring a lot with them. They would just buy them when they got there. And so that was kind of a normal thing to have Merchants set up in the temple selling animals, wine, oil, salt, all kinds of different things. All the things that the pilgrims would need to offer sacrifices. But what had happened over time is that this became a, a money-making scheme. Jesus is saying, the temple is not here for you to take advantage of people financially or to somehow corrupt the, the worship of God's people, it's here for worship. So Jesus runs them out and by running him, them out, he's declaring that the temple was his place. It was his domain. He's declaring ownership of the temple. He's declaring he's the one that has authority. This is a humbling passage because it shows us just how, how much religious Religious people can take a good thing and mess it all up. We can take God-given blessings and turn them into self-centered pursuits. 
You see that on like display big time with the prosperity gospel, right? But friends, we can do the same thing. We, we can take a good thing, a, a, a commanded thing and make, make it all about us and completely derail its purpose. Jesus arrives here on the scene, he's like, hey, this is not about you and your wallet. Don't be so foolish and be so proud. This is about God and his glory. Of course, as he does so, the religious higher ups are not happy. See that there, don't, don't we? He was teaching daily in the temple, so he had now ridded the temple of the, the money changers. He begins teaching in the temple daily and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people, they were seeking to destroy him. Things are getting amped up. Jesus, we know, we know that Jesus taught, he's teaching daily in the temple. We know that from previous passages, he teaches as one with authority. He declares, he demonstrates his authority in verses 45 and 46, and now he begins teaching with that same authority in the temple. And we see here though, as the Pharisees, the scribes, and the principal men of the people respond seeking to destroy him, they were not having it. Friends, isn't that true that the authority of Jesus will always be a threat to the world? That much is clear. We see a little snapshot of that here, don't we, in the temple with the religious people. The authority of Jesus will always be a threat to the world, but the authority of Jesus will also be a threat to the religious. Are you following Jesus? And his word, do you embrace him as king and Lord and savior? Are you following Jesus on his terms? Or do you kind of create some terms and conditions yourself and say, Jesus sign here and then I'll follow you. Are you following a religious system of your own making where Jesus at times becomes a, an inconvenient burden to you? He kind of cramps your style a bit, makes it hard. Listen, Jesus is not only your savior, he is your Lord, he is king. He is king. He is one with authority and the one to whom we must look, the one to whom we must trust and the one we must follow. There's so many voices, so many worldviews that seek your allegiance, even religious voices that seek your allegiance and your devotion today. And we must know better, we must understand that Jesus Christ, the Son of God who come into the world to save sinners, he is the one to whom we must listen and yield our allegiance. He's the one with an expressed authority. Well, we know Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. He's come to the holy city to make a holy claim, a claim of messiahship, a, a claim as king. And he's gonna to go to a cross and make a claim for sinners. And through these 
scenes, through these three movements we see in this text this morning as Jesus is moving from the outskirts of the city now into the city, into the temple in the heart of the city, we see that. We see that Jesus is king. We see that through his, his coming that he cares deeply for people, even, even the unbeliever, even the rebellious. He's the one who is king. He is the one who cares. He's compassionate, and yet he will not waver his justice. And he's the one with authority. He's the submissive, sorrowful, sovereign king of kings. He came to fulfill God's plan. He came and he grieved. He came and he warned. He came ultimately to, de to, de to demonstrate that he is the one and the only one to whom we must look and find hope. That's who he is. Have you embraced him? Have you kneeled before him? Have you considered yourself a sinner before a holy and righteous God, understanding there is separation between you and God because of who you are as a sinner? You understood that Jesus is the promised one. The whole, Old the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Old Testament is pointing us forward to this moment when Jesus would come and begin that week where he would accomplish the redemptive purposes of God once and for all. Are you following him? Are you rejoicing in this king? Friends, as, as Christians, are you delighting in the fact that as you review this, this morning, this is not just past news. This is the very foundation of your hope. This is why you get up in the morning and despite the, the, the challenges and the, the struggles that lie before you, this is why you get up and this is why you press on because Jesus reigns. And he's proved himself to be exactly as God promised. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for giving us a snapshot through your word of what Jesus did. Lord, even as he's making his way into the city of Jerusalem, long before the Passover meal, long before the arrest, long before the, the, the horrible crucifixion and then the glorious resurrection, long before these things happen, Jesus continues to be at work. God, would you give us eyes to see him? Lord, if there is any unbelieving heart in this room, if there are any residents of Jerusalem who are not seeing or believing or embracing him this morning, God, would you open their eyes? Would you give sight to the blind? and hope to the hopeless. Would you bring salvation to hearts today? Lord, there may be people here that they didn't even realize they were lost and they understand now before a holy and righteous God that they are sinners and that there's coming justice and judgment for those who rebel against you. Lord, would you, would you move their heart this morning to believe in Christ, to embrace him by faith, to follow him as Lord and King the rest of their days. Father, for these 
precious brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, for each of us this morning, would you use this text in our lives however you see fit for sure, but Lord, would you just help this, this flashback, this look back to what Christ came to do. Lord, would you just help that be source of our joy and hope this morning, despite what may be going on in our lives. That we would see that the perfect son of God, the eternal perfect son of God left the glories of heaven to come and humble himself and ride in to a holy city that would reject him on a donkey to give himself for our sake. God, help us to see it, to rejoice in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.